good morning, everyone. Um, you guys probably don't know me. Uh, my name is Alex Choi. Uh, I, about 13 years ago, planted a church in downtown LA called Sovereign Grace. Uh, my family and I, in the month of August, uh, we uh, recently stepped down uh, and, and kind of helped the church transition with a new leader. And so uh, I'm unemployed and uh, I get to be here with you because I'm unemployed uh, and look forward to just kind of uh, sharing God's word with you. If you have your Bibles or I'm not sure how your church does it. You guys posted up the verse up here? No? Okay. Uh, if you have your Bibles or a phone app, uh, you're going to want to go to Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to 15. Now, if you can choose your translation, I'm going to be reading from the ESV. Uh, just if you'd like to sync up with uh, the translation I'll be reading from. <clears throat> Excuse me. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to 15. This is the reading of God's word. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Amen. You know, uh, I think all of us were very well aware that we are governed by natural laws. Uh, just to give you one example of a natural law, gravity, right? There's, uh, you drop something, it's going to fall, you trip, it's going to hit the ground. Uh, there are natural laws that there's nothing you and I can really do about. We live uh, according to the way that God made this world uh, physically. Uh, whether it be the rain or the, the photosynthesis, uh, re regardless of uh, how we live our lives, there's a natural law that governs our lives. Um, you know, and, and I think these natural laws are really, really important because uh, as Christians, sometimes we're very tempted to over-spiritualize things in the world rather than recognizing that God created a world, a natural order, a solar system, uh, the earth goes around the sun, um, and that's just how uh, life is. Uh, I don't. Uh, I grew up in a very charismatic tradition, meaning uh, a lot of spiritual gifts, uh, a lot of emphasis on the spiritual realm. And I remember one time, uh, one of my my pastors, uh, he was also a friend of mine. Uh, you know, we were, we were singing praise, and now we have multimedia. I don't know your church and how old you guys are. But back in the day, we used to have a transparency machine. And so there would be a, a guy or a woman who would, you know, slide the lyrics. And uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, definitely I've seen actually some universities uh, still use it, uh, you know, as short as like seven years ago. So anyways, it's a light, right? And then the mirror and it reflects the lyrics. And that's how we sing our worship music. Now, uh, I remember one time we were singing and it just turned off. It shut off. 
the pastor thought um, it was demons. So he said the devil doesn't want us to sing. So he invited the whole group to lay hands on this machine and to cast out the demons in Jesus' name. Now, that kind of annoyed me because I, I used to be a worship leader. Uh, and so I knew what was happening. I knew the light bulb went out. You know, so I went to the back, I got a light bulb, and I just stuck it in, you know, and then it turned on. So no demon possession, just, just an old light bulb. And so uh, I think, uh, I don't want us to diminish the natural laws. They're very, very real. They're part of our lives, uh, and we live them. We have to respect them. We have to honor them. You have to, you know, you got to change your oil in your car. That's just the way life works. You got to put gas in, uh, and it'd be great if the Holy Spirit did all that stuff for us, but... God created a world in which he wanted us to uh, understand these laws and to live by them. <clears throat> but there are also, uh, there are natural laws, but there are also spiritual laws. And uh, the most fundamental spiritual law that I think we are governed by uh, can actually be found in Genesis chapter 1. If you remember in Genesis chapter 1, um, it's really interesting. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there was darkness, it was formless, and it was empty. And I think that's really interesting because when you look at, um, you know, when you look at, <clears throat> when you think of those three concepts, darkness, emptiness, and formlessness, I think a lot of us, we associate that with the presence of sin, right? Sin, right, if we, uh, uh, and, and, I, and I always wonder, why did God create the world within that state? And why did Moses, the writer, write down the world was formless, empty, and it was dark? And I believe what God was doing there, because I think the whole Bible seems to kind of point this direction, is that until, God, what God was saying is, until I step into this, right, until I breathe of myself into these people that I'm creating, until I speak, there is no life. In other words, think about the opposite of that. What God is saying is the spiritual law that will govern you, I'm going to create gravity, I'm going to create a lunar system, a, a, a solar system, I'm going to create all of these natural laws, but I'm also going to create this world with a spiritual law, and that is uh, if you are not connected to me, there will be no life, there will be, no, there will be nothing but emptiness, formlessness, and darkness in your life. I think that's what God was saying. And I think the, the testimony of our lives and the lives of the people in this world, as sure as gravity is, it is also a certainty that if we disconnect ourselves from the one who created us, your life and my life will be empty, there'll be darkness, and it'll be, uh, it'll be formless. And so, you know, today what I want to be talking, uh, talk to you about today is a little bit from Colossians about this, uh, uh, something that I think uh, Satan uses and the world uses uh, to disconnect us from God more than anything else, and it's called religion. Uh, here, Paul is going to call us, the, it's gonna call, he's going to call it the philosophy, the empty deceit. He's going to call it human tradition. And, and I, I think this is really important because uh, one of the ways in which, why religion is such a powerful tool to drive people away from God is because uh, it, it's really the goal of religion is to drive and instill fear into the hearts of people. So I'm defining religion not in a positive way. I'm using it in a sense of any belief system that teaches that you have to save yourself by what you do, right? So another, one, of the, one of the religion cliches is God helps those who help themselves. That's not true. 
God helps those who can't help themselves. That's the whole message of the gospel. And so, you know, there are all these subtle religious teachings that Paul is going to call philosophies, empty deceits, human traditions. He even goes as far to say they are elemental spirits of the world that are not according uh, to Christ. And so, uh, now, the reason why the devil is so crafty, he's very, very smart, and fear is an incredibly powerful tool that he uses uh, and that religions use uh, because, uh, ultimately, how does that separate us from God? Because fear is the opposite of love. You know, you think love, the opposite of love is hate, and that's not true. You know, uh, you, know you sit there and go, I hate you. Like, think about, I want you to think about this. If hate is the opposite of love, why is it that we only say I hate you to the people we really love, right? So when you have kids, they tell their parents, I hate you, you know, but it's not true, you know? Uh, uh, and, and the reason why hate's not the opposite of love is there's still such a powerful emotion with hatred, right? Now, so other people have said, well, then the opposite of love is indifference, right? You don't care. Um, but I would say that according to the Bible, indifference is not even the opposite of love, right? Uh, I would say, I think the Bible teaches that it's fear, right? Because he says, perfect love casts out fear. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but the number one most commanded commandment in the Bible is not pray, it's not worship, it's not read the Bible, it's not even believe me. The number one commanded commandment in the Bible is fear not. And the reason why is because God is very much aware that you and I live our day, our lives in fear. And so, uh, you know, and religion produces this fear, and fear is the opposite of love because it, it ultimately, fear is the thing that will drive you away from love more than anything else, okay? Uh, if you think about uh, a relationship or you think about your relationship with your parents, you think about a relationship with an authority figure, uh, the ones who are able to successfully produce the greatest amount of fear in our hearts I would argue, drive probably the greatest wedge in between you and the object of that love. And so here, the Apostle Paul says, I want to uh, warn you of religion. I want to warn you of these human traditions uh, that he calls philosophies, deceit, and human traditions. And he's, he's always, in all his letters, he's preaching against religion. He's preaching against this belief that if I live good enough, if I pray hard enough, if I do these things well enough, then God will bless me, then God will save me, then God will deliver me, and um, that's simply uh, not true. And churches, we are guilty of this as well, because fear is way more effective than teaching people love and grace. It is much easier for me as a dad to instill fear in my kids, who are, they're all here right now. Well, not all, my oldest is in London. She just started college. Uh, and, but, uh, but it's much easier for me. And I, I was pastoring in downtown Los Angeles, you know. Um, it is the most sexually active, uh, uh, drinking, drug-using church I have ever led in my life. And I'll tell you this, it was, I was so tempted at times to just preach hellfire brimstone and scare them into heaven. It, it would have been very easy for me to do. I'm really good at it. But at the end of the day, what I learned very at a very young age, because I grew up with a lot of fear. I, was, I grew up with fear in my home. I grew up with fear at church. 
I grew up with fear everywhere I went, and I can tell you it is very effective uh, at producing short-term change, but it doesn't ever, ever change the human heart. Never does. Never works. And so uh, the reason, so the Apostle Paul is very wise in spending the vast majority of his efforts as a writer, as a teacher, as a leader, in trying to remind the church that you are not changed by being afraid of God or afraid of the church or afraid of the word, but rather you are changed when you come to accept that Jesus loves you. And so if religion is the greatest obstacle to experiencing the love of Christ, then what I want to do is something very practical, is give you a few questions I want you to ask yourself to discern the religion that sometimes replaces the gospel. The gospel is a message that you're, you're loved by Jesus, you're, you're a sinner, right? You and I are sinners, we deserve hell, but because of God's great grace, he saved us in his love. And if that's the gospel, uh, I want to think about a few questions that I want you to ask yourself, meditate on, reflect on, to discern the religion that replaces Jesus, because it happens very subtly, right? It happens to the churchgoer. It happens to the worship leader, the pastor. It happens to the Sunday school teacher. Uh, and so I want you to ask these few questions. Number one, what makes you angry? And I know that sounds really stupid, but I, I want you to really, it, it, it's a, it sounds like a silly, simple question, but it's actually a very profound one if you really break it down. So what makes you angry? Now, what is anger? Now you have to understand, anger is the only sin that is also a virtue. All sin is a corruption of something good. So lust, right, is not an independent entity that, you know, you know, like, no, uh, lust isn't just a beast roaming the, the land. Lust requires the existence of love because it twists and corrupts love. That's all sin. All sin is not independent. It is parasitic in nature. It requires something good to feed on, and it twists it, okay? Now, if you go through all the seven deadly sins or you go through any sin in this world, you'll see that's true. It's a corruption of something good. But anger is the most interesting uh, enigmatic sin because it, uh, it actually is a corruption of itself. In other words, uh, anger is a corruption of anger. Anger is a virtue. God is a God of wrath, right? Eric actually reminded, he didn't remind us that God is a God of wrath, but he said he's a powerful, holy God, right? And Jesus, right? Uh, uh, Jesus, I mean, I don't know, he, was, he, he, he got angry, you know. He went Moses on people, right. And uh, so he, you know, Moses was an angry dude. Uh, the prophets were angry people. Uh, and, and so there's two types of anger. There's ungodly anger and there's good anger, right. And so the problem with the church is that when we should be angry, we're not. And when we shouldn't be angry, we are. Uh, it's kind of a, one of the signs that we're unhealthy. Now, uh, what is anger then? Because I don't want us to think anger as sin and then throw it away, right? Anger, the truest definition of anger is simply, and my favorite is the late David Pallison, who was a Christian counselor. Uh, I'm a very angry guy. Uh, you can't tell, but I'm very angry, okay? So uh, I yelled at my family to come to this church, you know, like, get ready, let's go, you know. And uh, I'm a very angry dude, so I read a lot of books on anger because I'm angry. And I don't want to be angry. And so I read this book, and I paid like 20 bucks for it. It's written by an amazing Christian thinker named David Pallison. 
And he defines anger. I spent 20 bucks for this. He said, anger is, I'm not okay with that. Now, I don't, I don't know about you. I, 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 that really made me, like, $20? Like, seriously? I'm not okay with that? But then, because David Pallison is so smart, I actually said, you know what? There's something I'm not understanding, right? Because he's so good. For him to say something like that, something's wrong with me. I need to think about this more. And so I did. And I realized the definition, his definition of anger is so pure because at the end of the day, what he's saying is this, is that our anger, good or bad, depends on our value system. So you and I have values, right? These things are important to us. These things are right. These things are good. We have an order in our life about what is right and what is wrong. We have an order in our life about what is important and what is not important. And what David Pallison say, saying is that the definition of anger is, I'm not okay with that. You did something or someone did something that violated my values. You guys get that? And I like that definition because it can be applied to, uh, it can be applied to uh, the good anger, right? That I'm, you know, uh, my values are God's values and therefore, I'm upset because you violated uh, God's law of love. But it also applies to sinful anger because you and I all have values that are actually not important. Okay? And so, uh, you, know, you know, yeah, we all, have, we all have values that are not important. Okay? So, uh, one of the things, like my wife, um, you know the Arrowhead bottle? Like, you know, uh, it has to be front-facing and centered. So for about three years, I would wake up every day and I would just twist it, just to drive her crazy, you know. Now, I would say this. It makes her angry when I do that. That is a value that is not shared. I don't think God cares about that. But my wife cares about it. So I shouldn't do it, which I stopped. But uh, all the, you guys see what I'm saying? So it's like uh, we all have values that are important and not important. And so... When I ask you the question, what makes you angry, there's a second question I want you to ask that I believe will reveal your idol or your false religion. Does it violate the values of God? So not only is it, does it make you angry, but does it, make, does it matter to God? Are the things that matter, that make you really, really angry, do they matter to God? Or do they only matter to you? Because if you insist on being angry at things that God doesn't care about, then you have displaced God as God. And so whatever it is, maybe some of you, you believe you have to fold clothes this way. Some of you believe the toilet paper has to go this way. It cannot go this way. Okay? And what I'm telling you is that if that's true and you are obsessed with that and you yell at people and you make people feel bad about themselves because of your value and your law, you have displaced the gospel with some form of right and wrong that God simply doesn't care. In heaven, toilet paper is going to be everywhere, sideways, up and down, I mean, it doesn't matter, okay? Uh, and, and so I want you to think about that question, what makes you really angry and does it matter to God? And anger is such a great litmus test for false religion because if you think about it, the Pharisees were very angry people. In fact, in one of the Gospels, it, it's one of the 
Okay, uh, you, you're probably not going to think it's funny, but I think it's funny because whenever I read something or see something, I, I visualize. I'm a very visual person, okay? And so there's this one story uh, that said uh, the Pharisees were so angry at Jesus, they gnashed their teeth at him. <laughs> I'm a pretty angry guy, and I've never, you know, I, I've never done that, okay? So... You have these people that were so angry at Jesus that you know, they, they, they did that when he was preaching, okay? Now, you know, the thing is this, is that uh, not only were they angry, it's because they were angry because Jesus and people were violating laws that were incredibly important to them. You can't walk this much. You can't do this on Sunday. You can't say this. You can't eat this. You can't drink that. And because of all these laws that they valued and that Jesus was saying are, it was, is not important, they were incredibly angry. And notice them. Notice this. Not only were they angry, what were they known for? People were afraid of them. And so you read the Gospels, go over and over and read the Gospels and read about the Pharisees. Time and time again, you will see two things. They are angry, and you will also see that they, people were afraid of them. You might have glossed it over, but people were afraid of them because they were teaching a law that was, and, and why? Because even if you don't believe a law is true, if somebody is zealously teaching something, it'll still make you afraid. My parents are immigrants from South Korea. And I'm going to tell you, and I know not all you guys here are South Korean. And so I'll tell you something about South Koreans. They believe that after you give birth, okay, a woman cannot touch anything cold for like three months. Okay? And they have to eat seaweed, food, uh, seaweed soup every day. So I see some babies back there. So you guys know what I'm talking about. If you're, if you're, like, you have to eat seaweed soup every day for like three months. My, my mother-in-law... Uh, my kids were almost always born in the summer, okay? Uh, there's a reason for that, but, uh, you know, I won't get into that. But uh, uh, they're all born in the summer, and, uh, and, and so it was really hot. And my mother-in-law would never turn on the air conditioner. My wife was not permitted to eat, eat anything, and she wasn't allowed to shower for three weeks, okay? I don't believe that crap at all but I was very scared. So, well, you know, like seaweed soup, and then like my wife would be like, get me some Taco Bell, I'm sick of this soup. And I'd be like, ah, I think your mom's crazy, but just in case, let's not do that. Because, you know what I'm saying? Like what happens if like my wife's arm falls off? Like, I, I don't want to be responsible for that. So I was like, just obey the stupid laws. You guys see how subtle it is? Laws are so powerful that even if you logically don't agree, you will, you will respect it with fear if, if it is spoken with zeal and with passion uh, and if it's, done, uh, 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 if it's done in that manner. And so it doesn't even mean these laws that you, don't, you agree with. It could be laws you don't agree with, but that the leader who's teaching them is passionately teaching them with zeal you and I will, uh, fear will have its way in us. And so um, the problem with the, the, the Pharisees wasn't that they had a law, 
but it's that their laws didn't reflect the values of God. And so that's why you and I have to ask ourselves, are, are you angry? Why are you angry? And is, are the things you, that you are most angry about, do they matter to God at all? If not, behind the door of your anger is your religion. For some of you, it's cleanliness, punctuality. Some of you, it's dressing a certain way, or it's having a certain reputation, or it's having a certain job, or certain education, or certain status in your school. All of these things can replace Jesus. Second question I want you to ask is, how many commandments do you have? God has 10. Every religious person has more than 20. I used to joke, I remember one time my mom was yelling at me about something. I started laughing. And she was like, what's so funny? And I said, God has 10 commandments and you have 20. Do you think you are holier than God? And she was like, shut up. God doesn't want you to say that. And I was like, 21 commandments, you know. And so, um, you know, anyway, so you have, you know, how many commandments do you have? The reasons why the Pharisees were so deceptive and they led so many people away from Jesus is because they had more laws than God. They had values that, that God himself did not value, and it wasn't because they were holier. You guys understand that? Anytime you're a religious person and you have more laws than God, it's not because you're holier than God. It's because you don't want to love. You see, all of God's laws can be reduced to one law, love. Love God with all your heart and love neighbor as yourself. See, that's the beauty. That's how you know this is a law of God or is it not a law of God, is that when you reduce it, right? You guys, I don't know if you guys like food, if you can tell, I love food. Uh, but there is a thing called reducing, right, a sauce. So you put a little watery sauce in there, you turn up the heat, and you simmer it, and the sauce begins to reduce, and then what you have is like pure essence, right? You have, you have this... this, this beautiful, sexy thing that God lets you eat, okay? Now, um, and, and so when you simmer your law, you reduce your law to like the bare essence of what you are teaching or what your laws teach. You know it's pure, you know it's gospel, you know it's from Jesus when that law comes down to loving God and loving others. But when you reduce the laws of the Pharisees, it is not love, it's self-preservation. The reason why the, the Pharisees create laws and the reason why you and I create laws is not because we're holier than God, but it's because deep down inside we know that everything God says is to love him and to love neighbor. But none of us wants to do that. So what we do is we create more laws to avoid loving people. We create laws so that we don't have to love God. We just have to do, 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 and not ever think, do I love him? Do I love her? Do I love my neighbor? Do I love God? Do I love Jesus? Do I love the Holy Spirit? That's a very, very hard question to answer. So to make things easier, they come up with crazy rules. Because at least then you can determine whether you have, uh, you, you see, that's what insecure people do. You create these laws so that you can feel better about yourself, right? But all you end up doing is producing something that, uh, that actually um, hurts rather than helps. Um, no, uh, question number three, and I'm running out of time, so I'm going to work through this really quick. Uh, number, uh, number, question number three, do I have an unhealthy desire for recognition? 
Um, when, you're, when you're a parent and you love your child, you don't demand recognition if you're healthy, right? I don't sit there and tell my kids, you know, you know, damn it. Oh, actually, I'm, I, I gotta be careful because maybe I do say it, but uh, uh, generally if I'm healthy, I don't brag about or ask people to recognize that I'm doing something. You know what I'm saying? So when I'm being an unloving husband, I'll be like, you see this trash? I'm taking out the trash. I, 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 she has to recognize and acknowledge all the stupid things I do at home. But if I do it out of love, I don't care whether she recognizes it or not. I just do it. And so for you, when you feel like, man, all these things that I'm doing as a mother, all these things I'm doing as a husband, all these things I'm doing as a son or a daughter, all these things I'm doing as a friend, if you sit there and you say, oh, God, you know, like, and you need that recognition, then behind the door of that recognition is your religion. There's something you are hoping will save you, give you meaning, and give you purpose in your life. The last one is not a question, but it's more of a statement that I want you to reflect on. And, well, I'll phrase it as a question. Are the externals greater than or equal to the heart? Are the external things of life greater than or more important than the heart? Do clothes and appearance and looks matter more to you than character? And I'm not just talking about what you see in other people. I'm even, I'm going to even say about yourself. If looks and all the externals matter more than the heart, behind the door of that philosophy is your religion. It's something that's more important to you than the gospel. Right? You know what's funny is this. Uh, you guys know like when you choose a spouse or when you're dating, they always tell you the heart is the most important thing, right? No Christian believes that. Because every Christian guy I know, they want a godly, Jesus-loving, but like looks like a hoochie mama, you know, like, like, like beautiful. Like, like she's got to look a certain way, you know. And so people, uh, I'm sorry, I, I can tell you guys are shocked by the way I talk. I'm sorry, this is, this is how I talk. I, I just talk like this. Okay? You're going to have to get used to it, like for five more minutes. Every Christian guy says, I want somebody who loves Jesus. And that's such, such a lie. Okay? They want someone who loves Jesus and who looks a certain way. And ladies, you're like, that's right, that's right. You got it the same way, ladies. You may not care about a guy's face, but don't tell me a very good-looking, godly man who prays to Jesus every day, five foot one, that you're going to be like, I want to marry him. It's not true. So what face is to a man, height is to a woman, okay? Or humor. Women love humor. Guys like whatever, like legs or like face or something. Like, but, but women also love humor. So I want you to think about this. We all have something superficial that we say is equal to or greater than the actual heart of that person. Self-image and worth. Everyone knows the heart matters, but it never actually matters. If you look a certain way, if I have a certain job, or if I get into a certain school, how much money and time do we spend on this? That is our religion. That is our offering. That is our devotion. That is our worship. 
Now, here's the reason why Paul and Jesus go at lengths and battle the Pharisees. They battle false religion. They go after it over and over and over and again. Is because one of the results of, uh, of religion and one of the results of fear uh, will always be delusion and pride. I want you to think about this. If you live your life out of fear, especially in relationships with people and God, if fear is the driving force, then one of two things is going to happen to you. You're either going to, you're going to, you're going to buckle down and you're going to fight that fear with your, with your righteousness and your grades and your looks and your accomplishments and therefore become uh, arrogant, or you're going to be crushed by fear. Because you will realize you're never good enough and you're going to feel bad about yourself and you have low self-esteem. And this is what Jesus says. When, Jesus said, when Paul says that Jesus disarms the philosophies and the deceits, what he's doing is he's taking away the power that fear has over you. Right? The fear, he's, he's disarming the power to make you delusional into thinking that you're somebody better than you are. But it also removes the delusion. He disarms the power that teaches you you have no value. You're nothing. So what does the gospel teach us? He says, he says Jesus, by the way of the cross, says, look, you are, you." In, I love how Tim Keller says it, you're, you're worse than you think you are. That's what Tim Keller says the gospel is. And that's true. The holier you become, the more unholy you will feel. Okay. You know somebody who's been walking with Jesus for 40 years? They do not feel more holy. They feel less holy. Why? Because they're more sensitive to sin than they were when they were younger. When I was young, I thought it was okay to yell at somebody. Now, if, when I hear Jesus' voice, if, if, if I'm walking right with God, then even a hateful thought feels like sin to me. You guys see that? And so what, what Jesus ends up teaching us is you're worse than you thought you were, but also you are loved in a way that you will never be able to understand. And this disarms delusion. It disarms pride. It disarms what religion does, right? Because we think too highly of ourselves or we think too lowly of ourselves and we are out of touch with reality. Now, what is the secret to overcoming delusion? It's actually found in verse 7. It's the strangest thing. Rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. You know, it's interesting, abounding in thanksgiving, because delusion, delusion, right, and pride is simply the failure to acknowledge reality. And what is thanksgiving at its heart? It is simply acknowledging that which is real. So you know what thanksgiving is? Thanksgiving isn't just saying thanks. It's saying, man, the reality is that my wife cooked five meals in a row. That is reality, and I'm going to acknowledge real, what is real, right? If you look at your children and you look at your church and you look at all these different things, what Paul is saying is the cure for delusion and deceit is to acknowledge reality. To live your life in such a way that you realize that even though I feel like a sinner, uh, I'm loved. Even though I feel like a righteous person, I'm actually a sinner. It's to live your life day by day in the reality of what actually is and to acknowledge that there's something helpful and therapeutic. 
The reason why gratitude is for Paul one of the cures for a heart that has fallen into fear, pride, and delusion is because gratitude ultimately sees through the gift into the heart of the giver. In other words, Paul says, I want you to abound in thanksgiving because every meal you eat, every job that you have, every paycheck you receive, every molecule of air that you're allowed to breathe, it comes from the love and the heart of God. My daughter moved to London, and she really misses my wife's cooking and my cooking. When I say my cooking, I, I cook like once every six months. Okay. But uh, when I cook, uh, I'm really good. And, you know, they say, um, never trust a fat doctor, a skinny chef, or a, a poor lawyer. You know, those are the three people you never trust. And so you can trust me, okay? Uh, and, and, you know, one of the things that I, 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 you know, my daughter never said this, but I know uh, when she misses home, it's not just, oh, I miss the combination of salts, you know, and flavors and spices and, and the way you stew it. That's not what my daughter's saying. When my daughter misses it, it's there's this meal that's prepared, right? And through the gift, she experiences our love. She experiences our care. She experiences that we know her. We know what she likes. We know uh, what she enjoys. We know those things, and we can actually cook a meal that will actually touch her heart. It's true when it comes to uh, money, or uh, uh, it, it contains one's sacrifice. Meals contain one's heart. Uh, uh, you know, all these different things that God does and people do, and especially what Jesus did, what Paul is saying is live a life that acknowledges the reality of all that is done. And when you do, you will not uh, fear and religion and deceit and philosophies will have no power over your life. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you for this church, for this ministry, for the people who are here. Um, and I, I want to ask that you would uh, allow the words that we share today and that we looked at in Colossians uh, really cause them to reflect. Uh, Father, a lot of us, we um, formless, empty, and darkness very much describes how we feel. And thank you for offering us the, the solution, uh, at least the, the diagnosis of why that we feel that way, that we, in many ways, are regularly disconnected from you. And I ask that as we reflect on what makes us angry, um, whether we have an unhealthy recognition for, um, uh, unhealthy desire for recognition, uh, we have more laws than Jesus, whether we, the externals are more important than what is going on in the heart, uh, I ask that you would simply save us and deliver us from the religion and the beliefs that lead us away from the life, the meaning, the purpose that we get to have when we're with Jesus. And so we repent of our sin of false religion and idolatry, and we come with uh, a heart that believes by faith that you forgive us, love us, and that you'll restore us. And I pray that more than anything else today that there will come a moment where each of us plugs our hearts back into the gospel, the grace, the love of Jesus, his law, his word, and um, his salvation. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay. Uh, thank you, Pastor Alex.
Okay, well, that concludes our service today. We'll have um, snacks downstairs, and uh, after a short time of fellowship and snacks, uh, we'll get together in, in our uh, various groups. Uh, you know, the youth kids will go with their teachers, and, and uh, the um, young adults will uh, divide into the Bible study groups. So, yeah, I hope to see everyone downstairs, and that concludes today's Sunday service. Thank you, everyone.